Our scripture reading today is from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And this can be found on page 737 in the Pew Bible. All right, Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he gave Belteshazzar, Hananiah he gave Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Carrie Lynn. Sometimes you draw the short straw and you have to read scripture on the day with all the names and places. So <laughs> thanks, Carrie Lynn. That was fantastic. Um, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus and just want to add my welcome to Carrie Lynn's. We're really glad that you're here this morning. Um, know that church isn't always an easy place to be, or uh, especially if you're trying to find a new one. So thanks for being with us this morning, especially if you're newer to Christ community or just newer to church. And um, one of the exciting things, just before we look at the scripture this morning, you may notice some folks missing. That's because we have 35, uh, that's the 26, 27 students plus uh, adult volunteers who are at our student ministries retreat with our other campuses. So that's an exciting thing. And um, so you may see a few less students and a few fewer adults around, but they're with about 270 other um, adults and volunteers from across some of our other campuses at Youth Front this weekend celebrating. So just even thinking, praying of them as that God would continue the work that He's begun in, in their lives over this weekend as we, as they return this afternoon and um, and head back to to normal life again. So. Um, as we prepare, though, to look at this passage that Carrie Lynn read so well for us, I want to pause and pray, and then we'll, we'll take a look at it together. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. So amid all the changing words of our generation, would you speak your eternal word that does not change? Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, I know that I can't start every uh, sermon with a Royals story, um, but I'm going to do it at least one more week um, here this morning, so if you can bear with me. Uh, last week, uh, we, we looked at a little bit of kind of hope and the Royals winning, and, and last year after the Royals ran, won the World Series, um, Rachel, me, um, Lucy, who wasn't quite two years old, and even Isla, who was there um, in, in utero, she was there, uh, not born yet, but she was there, um, we all of us went to the celebration parade and rally in downtown. 
And, and I've told you this story before. It was, it was insane. And, and many of you were, were there, and everyone has a story to tell of that day or trying to get there that day. And um, it was a great day in Kansas City. And, and when I tell my story, though, it, it involves me almost having a, a panic attack at one point because there was this moment when, when me, uh, my one-year-old, uh, my pregnant wife, we were stuck in the middle of this crowd. I mean, of literally 100,000 people and we couldn't move. I mean, people were kind of pressing into us on every side, and we were unable to move. And we had taken the bus there, and so we didn't even have a car, but we, I mean, we couldn't have gotten the car even if we had wanted to leave. And in that moment, I remember feeling one of the worst feelings I've ever felt. What was that feeling? It was the feeling of being utterly and completely out of control. We had no control in that moment. We, we actually wanted to go home. In that moment, we were like, we, just get us out of here. And we, but we couldn't. We had no control. We were completely trapped in this sea of people with no way out, this sense of being completely out of control. And what, what I realized in the middle of that crowd is how rare it is that I feel that way, truly out of control. It's, it's pretty rare to feel that level of out of control. And, and I'm used to being in control. I like to have, have a plan or a backup plan. I'm an Eagle Scout. Be prepared is my motto, right? I may carry a, a multi-tool and a flashlight with me always. I mean, even now, I'm mean, going to have my, my flashlight and my multi-tool in my pocket. Um, we hate being out of control, don't we? And yet I sense we are feeling it more and more. And I feel it when I turn on the news and once again you see how broken the world is, whether it's here something happening in our city or the country or across the globe. Or I remember this time next month um, we'll be getting ready to, to vote. Um, and I will vote, but I mean, wow, we, I don't think the choices have ever been more difficult to make. It's one of the most common feelings of human experience, one of the things we absolutely hate the most being out of control. And so get ready for what I'm about to say in this moment, because you're probably not going to like it. I, I didn't as I was studying this passage. But what we're going to see this morning as we look at Daniel chapter 1, and really as we walk through the entire book of Daniel, we're going to see that you and I were never meant to have control. You and I were never meant to have control. We want it. We fight for it. It's why Adam and Eve took the fruit in the garden. They wanted control. And we've been fighting for it ever since. And in fact, this entire uh, little book of, of Daniel in the Old Testament was written for a people who had never felt more out of control, more powerless, more abandoned than they had, who saw the world crumbling around them, everything that they had known, everything that was secure, absolutely upended. I mean, we think we feel out of control, but the people in this story, it's a whole nother level. And so I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 1 this morning and look at this passage um, in your Bible. It's a, it's a little bit past the middle. You can kind of see I'm open to Daniel here. It's, not, it's a little past the middle toward the, toward the end of the Bible in that direction. It kind of goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then you get to Daniel. Um, also feel free just to 
flip to that table of contents right in the front. Um, it's what it's there for, and find, find Daniel. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it is on page 737, or you can also um, just use your phone. Um, you can probably just Google the passage and it'll come up, or the YouVersion Bible app is great. Um, also, you may know that through the, if you use the YouVersion Bible app, you can actually navigate through and find the sermon notes and quotes and that kind of thing actually in the app. So that's a good way. So however you get there, get to Daniel chapter 1, and this is how the book begins. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, Judah was part of the, uh, what was the kingdom of, of Israel. It had been divided through a civil war into two halves. And so Judah was the southern kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom of Judah, and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, you might not fully understand from those, those couple verses what's going on here, but you can probably pick up that it's, it's not good. It's not good what's happening here. And it says the third year of Jehoiakim, that's 605 B.C. It's really quite a long time ago. That's 600 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And something really terrible is happening to God's people Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most powerful kings in history, ruler of one of the greatest empires of all time, certainly the greatest empire of that day. And you can read all about Nebuchadnezzar, not only in the biblical accounts of how he interacts with Israel, but in extra-biblical accounts of his rise. And if you were to go to the Nelson Atkins or to a history museum, you can see lots of um, art and artifacts from the Babylonian empire that talk about Nebuchadnezzar. And he's one of the most brilliant and powerful rulers to have ever lived. And this is evidenced by the fact that we're, we're still talking about him 2,700 years later. There's not a lot of people who have that kind of longevity in terms of historical significance that we continue to talk about and point to. He also was a brutal dictator, uh, bent on making the entire known world his. And 605 B.C., it marks the first of three attacks that he mounts against Israel, against Judah, culminating in 586 with the destruction and collapse of Judah and the city of Jerusalem being totally torn down and sieged against. But this first attack, which is where our story focuses this morning, was really more of a show of power than, than a crushing takeover but still, Nebuchadnezzar, he robs the Jewish temple and he takes hostages of sort of all the who's who of the Jewish world and deports them to Babylon. And God's people are terrified, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. While you may be thinking, just like many of them were, how could God let this happen to his people? How could God allow this? It really shouldn't have surprised anyone because God told them that this was going to happen. He told them this was going to unfold. Really, he hints at it all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, this group of books called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And Deuteronomy tells the story of Israel after they've left Egypt, after they've been enslaved, and God uses Moses to bring the people out. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, they're on the edge of the promised land, about to enter into this land that God is giving his people. And Moses goes back through and he re, um, 
rehashes, Greed goes over with them the law, the covenant that God has made with his people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God basically says, if you reject me, I will not protect you any longer. And if you try to control me or take control out of my hands, I will show you just how little control you actually have. You see, it's not that that power or influence are bad things. We all have that by virtue of being made in the image of God. We have certain amounts of power and influence in our home, in our school, in our workplace, and that's a good thing. We're called to steward that. But it's when we try to control our reality, when we try to be safe, happy, contented, apart from God's influence and control, this is where it begins to be a problem. Sort of like a two-year-old who tells you that they don't need your help putting their shoe on. So I can do it. But then you have to sort of let them fail in order for them to realize they can't do everything on their own. For centuries, God was so incredibly patient and long-suffering with his people, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to them. But their rejection, their rebellion kept getting worse and worse, and the rejection of God only grew And it got really bad about 100 years before this moment at the beginning of the book of Daniel. About 100 years before, King Hezekiah in Judah had experienced God in some incredible ways. God had healed him. He had protected him from the Assyrian Empire, which was the empire that was ascendant before Babylon. He protected him. Again, at that time, the Assyrians were in power And the Babylonians had yet to descend to this place of influence. They were the up-and-coming empire. And God says to Hezekiah, I'm in control of this situation. Will you trust me? But Hezekiah, he he doesn't. Or rather, he sort of, he wants to, but he also wants to make sure he's kind of got all of his bases covered just in case God doesn't come through. And so an envoy, an ambassador, someone from Babylon shows up. And at this point, Babylon and Israel, they're, they're not enemies. They have a, sort of a common enemy in Assyria. And, and Hezekiah shows off this Babylonian officially. He shows them all the treasures of the temple, which they've now just carried off in the beginning of the book of Daniel. And basically says, how about we work together? Let's make an alliance. We have all these gold, these riches in the temple. Um, you're a, a, an up-and-coming military power. Will you help us defend us against this Assyrian threat. Now, in Hezekiah's defense, in this moment with Assyria on his northern border, he is about to be invaded by a nation that still shocks historians with their brutality. I mean, torturing victims in ways that can't even repeat in a Sunday morning's context. And they're just to the north. I mean, it'd be a little like ISIS invading Iowa. And God telling us, don't, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. But that's this massive threat just to the north. That's what they're facing. And so instead of trusting God, Hezekiah trusts Babylon. Just now, you know, a hundred years later in the story is incredibly ironic because they're being conquered by Babylon. But they trust in Babylon. Hezekiah, this righteous man, one of the best kings, when he began to trust in politics to save him, it ends up with the destruction of the nation. God says this through the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah. He said, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. 
Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and shall become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You see, God has predicted that this is going to happen. But not yet. You see, Hezekiah would, he would die knowing his failure, and his son Manasseh would become the worst king <coughs> in Judah's history. Not, not just worshiping other gods, but actually murdering, even sacrificing his own son on the altar to the pagan gods, seeking to control the deities. And so it happens, just as God said, which leads us to our first observation from this text this morning, and that is that God will not be controlled. God will not be controlled. We can try to seize control. We can try to manipulate God to get what we want, but God will not have it. He will not be controlled. And and the consequences of trying to assume control, as we've already seen just in this brief introduction of the story, are they're disastrous. See, we were never meant to have control. And this this seizing of control that that rightly belongs to God, it's the the essence, the heart of sin. It's what Adam and Eve did. It's what Hezekiah and Manasseh did. It's what I do. It's what we do. And it's not that we're called to passivity or inaction. Uh, Far from it. We're, We're called to obedience. But you see, the activity of obedience is a trusting response to God's control, to do what He's called us to. You see, disobedience is a response of unbelief that tries to seize control. The activity of obedience is, is a response of trust to the one who's in control. Disobedience is, is a response of unbelief to the one who rightfully has control that we try to seize it from. We'll talk a lot more about that next week in terms of how do we actively obey God in difficult contexts. But what are those areas for you where where you would do anything for just a little more safety or a little more confidence or a little more say in how things are unfolding? Where are you at risk of robbing God of His authority? Not that we can actually take it, but that we're ignoring and treating as though He doesn't exist. It's not worth it. So just look at the mess that God's people are in here. The temple's been robbed. All the the items that were in the Jewish temple have been brought now and are in these pagan Babylonian temples, which is basically just a way of them saying, our gods are better than your gods. We've took all their stuff and put it with ours. And your God hasn't done anything about it. And then we come to verse 3 in chapter 1 of Daniel. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And this is where Daniel enters the storyline. He's the best that Israelite culture and nobility has to offer. Smart, capable, good-looking. Think of sort of, um, you know, the, the, the best of like an Ivy League athlete, brilliant academically, in, in, in great physical shape. These are the kinds of people that Nebuchadnezzar has chosen to bring back to Babylon. 
So Daniel and many others are now captives there in Babylon. And these are teenagers or younger. Students, if you're here this morning, if you're not on the retreat, I mean, think, this is you. This is, this is your kind of age when these people are being brought, taken away from their family, their homes, having no control. And this is a brilliant way to take over a nation. You assimilate the most powerful, influential people, and you get rid of their identity, their culture, and you make them Babylonian. Most likely they were castrated when they were brought to Babylon. We don't know this for sure, but it would be pretty unthinkable in that cultural context to allow the threat of testosterone in the king's palace, that near the king's harem. They were taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They were taught from the cultic pagan documents, indoctrinated brainwashed with the worst propaganda. For three years they were force-fed the evils of Babylon and demonic worship practices. In the midst of this, four young teens stood out above the rest. And they're mentioned here. But they even took away their names. Their names had just a little too much identity wrapped up in them with their previous life as Jewish people. You see, Yahweh is the name of the one true God and Hananiah meant Yahweh has been gracious. So now his name is changed to Shadrach, which means enlightened by the sun god. Mishael was who is like God. Now he's Meshach, who is like the god of Ahu. Azariah was Yahweh is my help, but now he's Abednego, the servant of the god of Nego. And then, of course, there's Daniel, and Daniel means God is judge, and now it's Belteshazzar, the prince of Bel, who is another Babylonian deity. <coughs> so now every time someone called his name, every time I called any one of these guys' names, a reminder of all that they had lost, a reminder of all the, the evil and how out of control they were in their context. And by the way, just as, as kind of a side note here, just an observation to make, this is one of the reasons why I trust the Bible as a historical document, that this is not just the, the individual history of a nation written by that nation, because um, every cultural historical document tends to show only the good side of that, that culture. So when you look at Babylonian or Syrian or Egyptian history, they, they don't tend to write in great details about their failures and diagnose the, all of the reasons why the gods are punishing and judging them. But the Bible, it specializes in this. It, it wasn't, <clears throat> if this was merely an Israelite book, it, it wouldn't tell these stories, not in this kind of detail, not in this kind of incriminating look at how messed up this nation was. And yet the Bible includes lots of these stories, hundreds of them, that show the worst of this people on display. But if this is God's book, we would expect that he would tell the truth even in its darkest and most humiliating moments. See, they've just lost everything, this nation. They've lost their, their identity um, these young men who have been taken from their home, they've, they've been forcibly stripped away of their, their culture, their, their practices, as their faith, and they're out of control. Which brings us to the second observation of this morning. And, and I'm reminded that this is one I really have needed, especially lately. 
And that is that is that God's people have always lived in a world outside of their control. God's people have always lived in a world outside of their control. This isn't new territory for God's people. As you look around our world today and perhaps you feel a sense of control slipping away, and it it might feel like new territory for us as people, but it's not new territory for the people of God. We've never been in control. And if there's one thing that that actually makes me thankful, encouraged in the mix of our our current political situation, a reason I take hope even in the mess of it is I think it's for the first time for for many Christians in in the U.S., for many of us to really begin to realize, and I even put myself in terms of feeling this in this camp, really beginning to realize that we have so easily misplaced our hope. That as we've had it fairly easy in America to living out our faith. We've been able to maintain some sense of control, and now as we see that sort of slipping away and and realizing how out of line our broader cultural context is to our faith and who we're called to be, we're finally coming to realize that God's people in and every other culture have realized for a long time is that, that our citizenship isn't ultimately here, that our hope, our safety, identity isn't here. The Apostle Peter you know, 600 years after Daniel, who was killed for following Jesus, calls all followers of Jesus, he calls them exiles, just like Daniel. That we're not supposed to belong, we're not supposed to fit in, that we're never at home in the kingdoms, the countries of this world. One thing is definitely true. It certainly is harder probably now to be a Christian than it was <clears throat> 10 years ago here, and probably in 10 years from now it'll be even more difficult. But I can guarantee that it is not as hard as it was for Daniel. We actually, we joked in um, our teaching team meeting on Monday, we get together and we said, we should make Nebuchadnezzar for president t-shirts. <laughs> But as wicked as, I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, neither candidate that we're facing is not even close to as awful as Nebuchadnezzar. Not even close. And I think if Daniel could somehow be transported through time and and dropped here in in Kansas City in 2016 in our current political political situation and could see our worrying and our our hand-wringing in this moment, I I, I think he would say, he'd be like, wait, wait, you get to vote? (laughs) Um... And so, here's the thing. The, the sky isn't falling. We may have less comfort. We, we may have less security, less, less power than ever before. But we were never meant to have control. And this, this country, this place, this city was never meant to ultimately be our home. So, don't miss this. In Babylon, God's people, they, they don't just survive what we're going to see in Daniel is that they, they thrive. <clears throat> One pastor put it this way, the darker it gets, the brighter our tiny light shines. They actually flourish the, the, the darker it gets. They, they suffered, and suffering in ways that, that we probably can't even begin to imagine. But it didn't stop Daniel from being faithful. So how did he remain faithful in the midst of this? This is where we need to take a moment and kind of think practically, what does this mean for us? Because God won't be controlled. God's people have always lived in a world out of control. And finally, this is most important, that God is always in control. God is always in control. 
And the most important words in these verses that we're looking at this morning, the words that, that set the tone really for the entire book of Daniel and our, our, our eight weeks that we're going to spend in this book, words that Daniel wrote most likely years later as an old man reflecting back on his experience. Because Daniel wrote this book, and it, and it covers a pretty large span of time. It covers from the time that he's a young teenager coming to Babylon all the way till he's an old man. It's about 70 years of time are covered in this book. And, and, and Daniel, he dies in Babylon, still there, an old man. And did you catch what he said way back in verse 2? He doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar did this. He doesn't say the Babylonians did this. He doesn't say that the, the, the devil, these forces of, of evil, spiritual forces of evil did this. Look at verse 2. He says, and the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave his people into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. He said, God did this. Because God doesn't ever lose control your illness, your unemployment, your, your disappointments, the things going on around us, none of this just happens. And not that those things are good things, not that God intended those things to be good in and of themselves. We live in a broken th- world where terrible things happen, but don't think for a moment that God isn't sovereign in the midst of them and sovereign over them. He has not abandoned you. We were never meant to have control. But instead, we are to respond to the one who's always had it. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, that means that all of your bad things will ultimately turn out for good. That none of your good things can truly ever be taken from you, and the best is yet to come. That's the great hope that we have. God who is in control, who has never lost control, and who promises ultimately to use everything for our good. And if you believe that, even if you're just struggling to try to cling to believe that, how do you begin to live in light of that? Well, three things. First, if we were never meant to have control, then we should stop trying so hard to get it. Stop fighting the losing battle for control and submit to the one who already has it, the only one who can truly have it. Where are you fighting against God and His control? Where do you need to repent? Where do you even need to embrace and learn from His discipline in your life? What do we do instead when we try to grab control? We, we feel control slipping away. We either try to grab or we grandstand. Maybe we give up. We grab at control when we feel it slipping away. We, we jump on some bandwagon, some cause. We, we manipulate people, anything we can do to feel safe. Oftentimes we lose our witness as a result. We end up coming across as, as, as not confident in, in God, but, but either arrogant or despairing that, that we are losing control. Or we grandstand. We, we may not have control anymore, but we sure look down on everyone who does. We sneer and mock and accomplish nothing. Or, or we just give up. But God doesn't give us permission to do that either because God being in control doesn't give us permission to be passive. Again, we're going to see a lot more in next week about what does it mean to actually live out life in active obedience to God in a world that's out of control. So don't give up. This is the second thing. Learn from those who don't have control. Learn from those without it. Like Daniel, for example, who ends up working as, a, as an official in a horrible Babylonian government. 
And yet he, he thrives in his position, and he's incredibly successful doing this work. He has no sort of head-in-the-sand moment where he just, he's eyes wide open, and yet he thrives and he flourishes doing his work well. But he does it, as we'll see, with incredible humility and respect, even love for his enemies. He does it with confidence and resolve. We have a lot to learn from Daniel about how to navigate the context in which we find ourselves. But it's not just in the past that we have to look or that we can look to learn from those without control. We learn from what God is doing right now. I think the African-American church in the United States has been always marginalized for centuries. How have they remained faithful in a world out of control, out of their control? Well, what is God doing right now in places like Iran? We have partners there with Elam who are doing incredible work of spreading the good news of the gospel in an incredibly difficult context. Christians are murdered and imprisoned. Where to become a follower, Jesus is to suffer. Just last week, they posted an article on their, their website that last Friday, 214 people were baptized, giving their lives to Christ, following him. People who could lose everything. You see, nothing is going to stop the good news of Jesus. And if God's people can flourish in Babylon, or Nebuchadnezzar, if, if Christianity, if Jesus his followers can grow and flourish and spread across the Roman Empire under those rulers 600 years later, if the church in China and Iran and the deep south, northern Kenya can flourish, then you know what? You and I are going to be just fine on Wednesday, November 9th, no matter what happens with the election. We are. which is the last thing, and this is really the message, the, the underlying message of all of this sermon this morning is really the whole book of Daniel. So it's trust God in it. God is in control. No matter what we face, either individually in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships, in health, all those things, or, or corporately as a people, we can trust Him. And one just really easy sort of practice, I shouldn't say easy, simple, one really simple way of expressing that control is to pray. Prayer ends up being a really big theme in the book of Daniel. Daniel is an incredible person of prayer. And, and if we're not praying, it's usually because we think that we still can have enough resources on our own to figure out our problems and our issues that are that our flashlights and our multi-tools are going to be enough to get the job done. But it's when those things stop working, when we come to the end of those, that we start to pray because we realize actually we need, we need help. And so just for the next week, first thing when you get up, before you go through and check Facebook or email or the news, your to-do list, just take 10 minutes. Set a timer on your phone for 10 minutes. So maybe spend five minutes reading the Bible and five minutes then responding to what you've read in prayer the God who's constantly and always in control. Prayer is a reminder that we can't do it, but that we serve a God who can, who is in control. I'm excited for this study of this book together. We're going to spend the next eight weeks looking at this book and 
I've realized as I've read through and read, studied Daniel, getting ready for this, that I've never needed this more. It's a book of incredible confidence in God in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. There's lots of books in the Bible that lament and cry out to God in the midst of difficulty, and those are really important, but that's not really the message of Daniel. The message of Daniel is one of great confidence and trust in God in the midst of incredibly hard circumstances. And yet, you know, Daniel, he does. He dies in Babylon. He doesn't go back to Israel. He dies there. He dies waiting. And like us, I'm sure Daniel pleaded with God to fix it, to take it away, to, to put an end to what he was going through. But Daniel only got the slightest glimpse of what was to come, what you and I can now look back on with such clarity and brilliance. That is the person of Jesus come that we can hear Jesus say in the pages of the New Testament, on the cross I have fixed this. I am fixing it. One day I will fix it completely and permanently. Maybe not in the timing that we want, maybe not in the ways that we imagine are best, but it's why he's come. And can you imagine a moment where the world seemed more out of control than when God in the person of Jesus is hanging, dying on a cross? Has there ever been a more hopeless moment? Has there ever been a moment when it seemed like Satan, the ultimate enemy, was ever more victorious than that? And yet, that moment becomes the bright, shining moment of rescue and redemption because Jesus doesn't stay dead. We, we proclaim that hope when we sing, in Christ alone, up from the grave, he rose again. He did that for you and for me to forgive our sins, to break the bonds that have held us, to allow for there to be forgiveness. And if that's true, even when it hurts, even when everything is taken from us, even if we die in Babylon, that we know that God is for us. You see, Daniel, he saw a vision before he died, and he wrote about it in Daniel chapter 7 vision about someone he calls the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, a shadow, a picture, a foretaste of Jesus. And this is what he writes about him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And like Daniel 2,600 years ago, it's in that person, that God, that we put our trust and our hope, even when things seem utterly out of control. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you, in these next weeks, as we look at Daniel, do the work to make your word and these promises more real, more firm, more concrete to us than anything else that we see happening in the news of the culture. That this would be the story that we plant ourselves in and can remain firm in. That we would have incredible confidence, not 
not an arrogance, not a, or despair, but an incredible confidence in a God who is absolutely for us. The cross is a testimony of that forever. In Jesus' name.